Good morning. Um, I'm glad the lights out for the, were out for that, but that probably caused a, a trip. Um, so for all of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I digress. We are in the book of Acts, um, and we are walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 11, and so we're going to be looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, and go ahead and turn there and follow along. We'll read that in, in just a moment. And when we read this text, you are going to feel maybe like deja vu. This text is extremely familiar if you were here last week or if you listened in last week to what we discussed last week. It's essentially the exact same story in a different circumstance. We learn something different from it, and I think God reveals it to us and and gives us this, this story multiple times to reveal something to us as a church that's extremely important. As last week, we saw Gentiles being saved, that the gospel went to all peoples, the the Gentile people, and also a missional transformation in Peter. As Peter, who already was brought to salvation in Christ, had placed his faith in the reality that, that Christ had come and lived and died and risen and done all of the work for him to be saved, the Spirit was living and dwelling in him. Peter's already been used incredibly to this point in the church, but God is continuing to transform and, and mold our hearts into his likeness as the Spirit works in and through us. So we saw the, the salvation of the Gentiles, and then we saw the missional transformation of Peter. And now we're going to see the church begin to get an understanding of this missional transformation. See, Peter has gone to the Gentile people, and the Gentiles have begun to come to faith. But the church in Jerusalem is still functioning under this reality that the gospel is primarily just for us. Now, Samaria and the Samaritans, they're, they're mixed Jew and Gentile. And so the gospel's already gone to them. They've had uh, kind of a day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen on the Samaritans. And it was important that Peter and John went there and put hands on the Samaritan people and prayed for them. If you remember this, as we studied the book of Acts earlier, this was probably a month ago or so laid their hands on them and prayed for them to reveal that the same spirit that was in the Samaritans is the spirit that is in the church in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem believers. So now Peter's got to go back to the church in Jerusalem and say, hey guys, uh, I got some more news for you. God has bigger plans than we ever imagined or we ever thought of, and he's doing some pretty cool things, but it's not something we would have picked for him to do. And they're going to have some issue with it. And, and so God's going to transform not only individual people through the power of the gospel and transform them, but he also transforms the church. He continues to mold his people into his likeness. And we're going to see the gospel radically begin to change this missional shift in the eyes of the church. And it's so important because they're really struggling. And we're going to, we're going to see this today if we have time at the end. They're really struggling to see the law that they had in the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. They're having a hard time viewing the law in the proper way because of Christ and who he is and what he's come to do. And it's, it's challenging their view of others. And so we're going to see God just radically rip down those dividing walls. And the reason, the other reason that God continues to share this story with us is so important for our lives individually as believers and for the life of the church and and how we live missionally on our purpose for God's glory and his kingdom to be built on earth as it is in heaven. It's important for the health of the church and the community of the church. Because listen, our main goal as the church is the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven, he's come, lived, died, risen. He's told that he's going to send the power of the Holy Spirit in his people to be his witnesses amongst all people. As we read about in Acts chapter 1 uh, verse 8, 
And then he tells the disciples as he goes, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. See, what I want us to see from the very beginning is what we see in this text is not a new plan. God is not changing anything. This is not Peter's idea. This is not the Gentiles' idea. This is God's idea. He radically comes in and interrupts the life of Peter. He interrupts the life of Cornelius. He interrupts the life of the church. And everything that we do here at Redemption Hill Church, we want to be God's plan, not our plan. And we're going to see God work in that way to bring about the gospel going to every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's been God's plan since the very beginning. And he needs to do something radical in his people to get their hearts and minds open to that reality. And maybe for some of us, our hearts and minds need to be open to that reality. As we said last week, some of us might need a missional transformation. We follow Christ, but we need to continue to grow in him and and his will and his plan and what he has called us to do. And we really need to hear this story over and over. That's why God repeats it three times in these last two chapters. We need to hear it over and over because we have a propensity to fall into a trap here. And we talked about these things last week, because it's the, but because it's the same story, I feel like we need to um, summarize a little bit of what we talked about last week before we can read it and, and know exactly where we are. But we have a propensity to fall into a trap here because we have a natural, natural and terrible problem in our hearts with prejudice and elitism and bias. Every single one of us. It's a natural tendency that we all have to fall into this trap if we are unaffected by the gospel truth. And listen to me, even if we are followers of Christ, but we're not continuing to be stretched in the gospel and we're going unchecked by the gospel truth in our lives, that the gospel truth is being spoken into us constantly, daily, by the community of God and by God's word and us seeking to rely on him in prayer and doing the things that we need to do in our lives to grow closer to him. This will continue to sneak into you and you will continue to find value and worth in who you are and what you do. It's something that sneaks in so easily. And when we find our value in who we are and what we do and where we're from, it creates pride. We build our value on pride. And the feeling of superiority comes along with that. And and so I'm building my identity and my value and my worth on what I'm doing and what I'm accomplishing and where I'm from and, and the groups that I'm in. And therefore, I need to elevate those things and And put those things on a pedestal, and that means by its very nature, I will put other things down. And pride, listen to me, always comes with a feeling of superiority and the feeling of insecurity. You will fear for your value and worth. Because everything you're putting on a pedestal can fall. And all of it eventually does. And so you're constantly worried about building up enough, and and that constantly causes you to put other things down even more, and you're constantly worried about losing what you have and what you have not being able to provide for you what you really feel like you need, and that just produces more pride in what you already have. And we're in this cycle of, of creating for ourselves prejudice and elitism in our own hearts. So therefore, we start setting up systems. So that the way we live and the groups we're in and the things we do and the things we've accomplished become normal. And then we trivialize other things that aren't like us, that don't accomplish things like we do, that aren't the way that we are, that don't think like we do, that don't look like we do. We gave several examples of that last week. And 
And one of the things that I didn't say was, was the way that C.S. Lewis actually refers to this. And I think it's so beautiful and gives us this really good picture of this. He says, all of us create inner circles. See, we desire to be in the inner circle. We desire to be in the know. We desire to be in the in group, so to speak. And so we'll create these circles around who we are and what we do to create this inner circle, this inner group of, of knowledge and understanding and power and value and worth. And then by the very nature of creating an inner circle, we need people to push out of the inner circle to give power to our inner circle. And this is what we do in our lives. And so we seek identity and self in man-made things, even in religion. It's so easy to do in religion. We create the inner circle of what we do and how we do it. And everybody else is on the outside of that inner circle. And therefore, pride begins to swell in us and bias and prejudice and, and, and all of those things follow. Because every single one of us was created to worship something for value and worth. And we all were created to put community and build community around what we worship. We were created to worship God and build community in him and by his work and grace have everything of value and worth that we were created to have and know and to be fully satisfied in him. But when we walk away from him in rebellion, we start creating uh, community around things that we worship defined by the characteristics uh, of the world. And it starts causing pride and sin and seeking identity and self and that naturally leads to division. It naturally leads to hatred. Now, every single one of us, very, very few of us, don't want love in our lives. We don't want unity. We, we desire for everybody to be unified and loved and, and care and be compassionate. We all want that because we were created in the image of God to know love and to have unity in him and in him alone, to have acceptance completely, that we were all created in his image and therefore we are equal and not just equal to be separate, but equal to be unified. So we all want those things, but we can't find it in and of ourselves. It's a, it's a lost cause for us to seek. We, we constantly have this reminder in our lives, and I think this is a beautiful grace of God. We constantly have this reminder in our lives that we desire what only we can find in God, to be in the inner circle of God, to be in community with him to have unity and love because we are defined and have our value by his work. And through grace alone, we have everything that we long for and were ever created for and are holy and completely satisfied in him. We all long for that because we're created in his image. But then we also have this constant reminder of our sinful hearts rebelling against him and the fact that we can't find what we want because everything we try to build our, our life on and find identity in and build value from, it, it all tends to lead to disunity with other people because we're taking pride in those things. We're building ourselves up. We're creating our own inner circles. We're worshiping the point of that inner circle and we're creating community around it and that causes us to push others out. As we seek to find value outside of the one thing that gives us value, our creator God, we will never find what we're looking for. But God's grace is the difference maker. See, the gospel is the difference maker. That, that when Jesus understands God creates us in his image, but we walk away from him, he knows that there's no way that we can get back into his inner circle. We can't live up to his perfection, his law, his demands. We're out of his inner circle. 
But because of his great love for us, he sends his son to come and live perfectly on our behalf, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty of our sin, to rise from the grave, to overcome sin and death, so that by grace we might be uh, able to place our faith in him and be found in him and brought back into community with him. And therefore, in his grace, we are made humble, not proud. We're able to begin to see one another as God sees us. We're able to, in essence, love our neighbors as ourselves because we are loved by God. And we're just revealing the identity that we're given in him. We're able to be compassionate. We're able to seek unity. We're able to see the beauty of other cultures and and how they add to us because we were all created in the image of God. And therefore, if we are different, then we need to understand one another to have a fuller picture of who God is. And he's created us different to find unity together that we might understand him in a deeper and fuller way. And we're able to see that reality when we are made one with him through his grace by the work of Jesus Christ. And that means, as I said, that we're not just all equal and all made in the image of God and all able to have salvation in him. But it also means, as I just alluded to, that we're not just equal to be different, but different to be united See, in the gospel, we find that the cultural songs that we play are not competing rhythms. We fall into this all the time because we're finding pride in, our, in the things of the world and who we are and what we do. And so every different culture seems like it is competing with another to be the inner circle. So we create the normalcies around our inner circle and we trivialize others and we put others down and it causes disunity. But see, in the gospel truth, saved by God's grace, the cultural songs we play are not competing rhythms, but they are beautiful parts that are brought together in the song of God from every nation, from every tribe, and from every tongue. And in the gospel, we can begin to engage with one another. We can begin to listen to one another. We can begin to learn from one another. That's what we see with Peter and Cornelius, is it not? When he stays with them and they disciple one another, they eat together. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we can become a new race, a transformed people, all being revealed to us through who we are in God, and all being done in us that we might be united together for his glory. And by his work and grace, we are brought into his inner circle and completed in him. So this is what we saw last week as as God began to reveal this to salvation to the Gentiles and, and this missional transformation in Peter through two different visions happening at the same time. See, from the very get-go, we see it's all about God. It's God's plan. It's his thing. He's bringing the gospel light to, to reality. He's opening the eyes of the blind, and he comes in a vision to Cornelius for the Gentiles and Peter for the Jewish people and the church so that the gospel can go to the nations, so that they can be united as one. And then because of those two visions, God bringing them together, the gospel becomes greater than anything that we can be defined in on earth. All Cornelius wants to know is Christ. All Peter wants to know is Christ deeper and to reveal what he has discovered in Christ by Christ saving him. So it's all centered on Jesus and therefore they can meet together in one home, which is something that would never happen in their culture. They can eat together, which would never happen in their culture. They can lift up the same God together because there is one true God, but this would never happen in their culture. Peter stays with the Gentiles, which would never happen in their culture. We talked about all these things last week. 
So listen, without this text, Christianity could have easily just become a Jewish faith. But because of this moment, the church is open to all people. This is how God uses it. And it's ultimately open to us, who are mainly the Gentiles. See, a lot of times when we read scripture, we read ourselves as the Jewish people, the Israelite people. We're not. We're the Corneliuses. And God opens up the gospel truth to us. So uh, I need to, to, to move on here. Let's read the text. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and brothers, so these are believers, all right? So these are people who have placed their faith in Christ. They're, they're struggling. They're being transformed by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in them. Who were throughout Judea, heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Uh-oh. So we immediately know we're going to have some tension here. We saw it with Peter last week. If all the people in Jerusalem find out, then we have Peter times a lot. All right? And Peter was not very happy with what God was trying to do. So when Peter went back to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descended, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air, so clean and unclean animals. And a voice said to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which they were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as one of us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. This is not a new plan. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I want to be on his team. And at some point in our lives, that question comes, are we with him? Or are we for ourselves? When they heard these things, look at the repentance here. This is one of the most beautiful statements in all of scripture especially for us who are not the Israelite people. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So as we see God breaking down walls and barriers that have been up for thousands of years between people groups, Peter now has to go back to the Jerusalem church and as I said, explain to them that this is one faith with one God and one salvation. The Spirit fell on us in the beginning. The Spirit fell on the Samaritans. And now the Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. God's plan is so much greater than we could possibly imagine or think. And, and I imagine he already knows that word has gotten back to the circumcision party. right? Which is most of the Jewish people. And we'll describe them in just a moment. 
But he knows. He's, he's got to kind of be thinking in his head, how do I describe this? What do I say? Do I water this down? Do I try to play both teams? Like, what do, what do I do here when I go before the church? And as soon as he gets into town, look at verse 1. The apostles and brothers, these are the believers in Jerusalem, they heard that Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles and that they're getting along with the Gentiles. Like, they're holding Bible studies together. They're planting churches together. They're calling one another brothers and sisters in Christ. They're calling one another family. They're united together in a way that nothing has ever been able to unite them together outside of now. Jesus has set them free, and the Spirit is living and dwelling in and through them, and suddenly they love one another. They're not just putting up with one another. They're eating together. They're loving one another. They're caring for one another. But the Israelite church is not happy about that. They don't understand how the law that, that they know in the Old Testament, which gives them these eating laws so they shouldn't be eating with people, that gives them these circumcision laws so they shouldn't be being friends and family with those who are uncircumcised, who are not of the Jewish faith and tradition. And the laws were real, but, but they're having a hard time seeing the law now in the post-Christ and his death and his resurrection through the lens of what Christ came and fulfilled and accomplished. But they have a real issue here. And, and we need to, to understand that. A lot of times in the church today, we have a whole lot of things that disunify us that we don't have unity in, but they're mostly not biblical things. They're personal preferences that we try to make biblical. But they actually have a biblical situation here that we're going we're gonna to discuss. But they're looking at Peter and they're going, we know our Bible. And you stayed with the Gentiles, that breaks the law. You ate with them, that breaks the law. We heard that you baptized them. We never thought that would happen. But if we knew that would happen, we would have made a law. Right? You are doing things that you should not be doing with them. And, and they're looking at the whole thing and going, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're Christians now. They're following Jesus now. They're family with us now. Too much. Like, this is too much. Salvation belongs to us. See, in reality, salvation belongs to the Lord. But a lot of times we feel like it belongs to us. And they're going, man, even if they do get the gospel, can't we just stay separate from them? Like, you do your thing on your side of the tracks. We'll do our thing on our side of the tracks. We'll both be Christians, and we'll say we love one another and wave on Sundays. But, but we can just do our own things. There's no sense in unity and family and loving one another and caring for one another. So to them, it's absolutely wrong. Peter has gone rogue. And they are going to be the good Christian people that try to pull him back in. You ever had those people in your life when you discover something that God's word said that maybe you thought your whole life it says something different and suddenly God makes his word come alive to you and you understand that what you were hearing was just some kind of tradition that your family just always taught and your church always taught. And then somebody comes along and says, look, actually read scripture. And you read and you're like, what? I thought that was something I was supposed to be doing or not doing. And God says I can do it to his glory or whatever it may be. And then somebody comes along and tries to reel you back in like you have, your, I'm, I'm fearful for your salvation. Right? That's what's happening here to a much greater degree. They're trying to reel him back in. And so the circumcision party, as I said, have already heard the news. And, and they're looking as a group of believers, right? And, and who the circumcision party is, by the way, besides just a group of people that didn't get creative enough with their name, um, is they essentially held that you had to be circumcised to be a Christian, to be saved. 
And, and so it's this idea of you need to abide by the Jewish faith or traditions to be saved. And so Gentiles were coming to faith, but they were becoming Jew, essentially. They weren't seeing the beauty of all cultures and what God is doing and how we can learn from one another and, and see God in deeper ways. They just all wanted to make everybody like them. They weren't celebrating culture. And, and so they, they wanted everybody to become like them. And essentially what that is today in today's terms is Jesus plus something else equals salvation. So yeah, Jesus, like he came and he lived and he died and he rose and you need him and place your faith in him. You, you have to have that. That's salvation. But also... You need to do this or not do that. And we see this all throughout the church today and religious people. And, and, and basically what's happening here is the people are just being a little bit self-righteous. They, they are believers. God's going to do a mighty work in them by verse 18. But, but there needs to be some transformation here because they're the self-righteous party. They feel like they have it all figured out. And so, yes, Jesus, but we also need this thing. And God's going to blow that out of the water, too. But I did point out that they did have a point here. They just need to learn something. This was an actual law in the Old Testament. We'll see this in just a moment. But God did give them circumcision laws and food laws. As I said, they're just failing to see how it applies to Christ. So Peter comes back and they're criticizing him. And when I say they're criticizing him, they are really criticizing him. Now, I know that we have really evolved as people today. All right, I, I absolutely, I understand. We like to give people the benefit of the doubt today. We don't jump to conclusions about people. We like to lead in grace and humility. I know that we don't criticize uh, to destroy people before we've found out from them and heard from them and talked to them. We just like to hear things through the grapevine and then jump all over them. I know we don't do that now. Like things are a lot different and we've evolved a lot as a people, but that's what was happening here. And, and I love how Peter responds I absolutely love it. And I hope for me and I hope for our church, I hope for every single one of us that we can respond in grace for the building up of God's church and the, and the, and the faith of those who do not know Christ at this point in the way that he, res he responds so beautifully. And, and I hope that we can respond this way because there are going to be in our lives as we walk in our Christian faith, people in the world or the world or culture in general that will want to criticize you for where you find life and where you find value and where you find hope. Because again, remember, they've got their inner circle and they've got their pride and they've got their kingdom. And if you're on a different team, then they need to put you down and criticize that to build theirs up. Pride is what they find value in, not grace and humility, which we can only find in Christ. And so the world will come up against you. And I hope that we respond with such love and compassion. But also, you need to know that oftentimes the religious self-righteous people will come up against you too. There's one thing I have learned in my days of church, and that is that the church often likes to get together and take a vote on whether or not God can do in their midst what God wants to do. All right, We often have our own ideas of how we want to see God work, and, and we get a little upset when something happens that's a little bit different and God has a different plan. So Peter's going to respond in such a beautiful way. He doesn't lash out. Everything he does is to bring healing. We see that healing through the power of the gospel in verse 18. So he doesn't get offended. He, he doesn't talk back to them. He doesn't criticize them in return. He refers to them as brothers. But he also doesn't try to water down what actually happened with the Gentiles to play both sides of the fence. He doesn't try to befriend them and scoot up close to them and then go over into the world and scoot up close to them. Like he is who he is in the gospel truth all the time in all things. And so he's just going to tell them the facts. 
He says, look, guys, I get it. I didn't like it at first either. I'm still honestly a little bit confused. It was hard. It was stretching. It fought against every fiber of the pride inside of me. But here's what happened. And listen to me, there, there is only one thing in our lives that is worth standing firm on that we can sleep well in. And that's what God's word has said to us and how he calls us into his mission and his plan. It's salvation in him and him alone. So Peter's standing firm on God and what God has revealed to him through his word. And he says in verses 4 through 10, I was just in the city of Joppa praying. Look at the story. And, and suddenly, I, kinda, I, I get this feeling that he is kind of telling the story and then almost looking at them for affirmation about parts of the story because he's really trying to prove a point here uh, that we'll get to in just a second. But I think he's kind of going, I was just in Joppa praying. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? And the circumcision part is like, eh, yeah, so far, so good. And then a vision came from God. I should probably pay attention to a vision from God, right? Uh, yeah. And the sheet came down and presented itself as the four corners of the earth and the church. I didn't understand that at first, but God began to open my mind to it. At first, I just thought it was a sheet with a whole bunch of animals on it. But then I began to see that they were clean and unclean, representing Jews and Gentiles together in one God. And then a voice came from heaven, rise and eat, which I came to find out later. But in the moment, I was absolutely confused that it meant share the gospel with all people. But at first, I responded just like you would respond. I want you to know that you can be proud of me. I would have done exactly what you did. I know the law. I know the scripture. I know the text. So when God told me something to do, guess what? I took a vote within myself. And based on my tradition and beliefs, I said no three different times. So you can know that I didn't want to do it. I felt like it was wrong. It felt very uncomfortable. And listen to me, every single one of us can relate to Peter in a certain way. God, you're my God, you're my Lord, not just my Savior. I love you. I want to be a part of everything that you're doing. Use me. Here am I. Send me. Then we come to church. We stand up and sing. Lord, take me deeper than my feet would ever wander. And then we go home and we read the Bible at night and we get to a certain section and we're like, oh, yeah, not going to do that part. That's outside my comfort zone. That's a little bit stretching. That doesn't really fit inside my cultural beliefs and the circle that I'm creating. Right? We all do this. And then we think, man, there's got to be a way around this. Right? Let me study. I'm going to do a deep dive into studying the Greek and Hebrew on this word. because, and, and certainly there's somebody who's written a book out there who agrees with me that what God is literally saying here, he's not literally saying. I need to find that. Because God is Lord and Savior, but certainly he didn't mean that. So we struggle with this too. It's what we do. Our sinful broken hearts want to take a vote and decide based on a multitude of sinful broken hearts that we know better than God. We do it all the time. And so we put God on trial. That's what Peter did. But at some point in our lives, we've got to ask ourselves the question, where do I actually find my value, identity, and worth? And if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, then it falls short of being able to give you value, identity, and worth. And so at some point in our lives, we've got to just leap forward and know that who God says I am, I am. And what he calls me to do, I will do. Even if it's stretching and even if it's hard and even when it breaks down my pride. So, so Peter's here and he's going, I asked again and again, guys. God, are you sure? God, can you check with yourself again and make sure that's what you actually want? 
And God says, I'm pretty sure I got it right the first time. Don't consider common what I declare to be clean. And so Peter's kind of telling us, this is what he's saying to the people. Guys, really, I'm a victim here, and I need you to know this. I'm a victim of God's grace. See, God had this bigger plan. I had, I, this was not my plan at all. I did not want to be a part of this plan. I did not want to do this thing. I wanted to be in your shoes. I would rather be where you are sitting. I did not want God to, to call me to do this. I did not want the vision. I did not ask for the vision. It was all God's plan. And his grace came upon me. And I look back now and see that his plan was bigger. And it was so much greater than anything I ever thought that I would be a part of. And God has opened my eyes to the reality of the beauty of the gospel in such a greater and deeper way than I knew before he called me out of my pride. So I'm a victim of his grace. And now Peter's going, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm thankful for God's grace. But man, it's not what I wanted. And he says, at that moment that I have this vision, verse 11, three men showed up to take me to Cornelius's house, and God told me to go with them, so I did. You would do the same thing, wouldn't you? And by the way, I took six of the men with me, verse 12, and that was really smart. I love that he throws that in there, because Roman law, you would need six people to verify a testimony. So he's going, here's my story, here's my testimony, this is what happened. Uh, I had six men, just in case you want to check with them, um, my, my testimony is verified. They saw it. And then he says, when I got there, Cornelius told me that God had come to him too. And he told me to send men to get me, Peter, that I might share the truth of Jesus Christ with them so that they could believe. And then I got there and I told them about the gospel. And it was this weird thing. It was like we had come together for the first time, not under the pretenses of who we are and what we have accomplished, but who we desire to be in Christ. And who Christ is making us to be and what he's doing in us. And there was this unity there that was just weird. Like he bowed down to me and I had to tell him to get up. And then we just had this instant friendship because it wasn't about who we are and where we're from and what we do. It was about Christ and who he is and what he's done. So I shared the gospel with them that Jesus came and he lived for them and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave to, to overcome sin and death. And by grace you can be saved by placing your faith in him. And even while I was still preaching... Like, I wasn't even at the zinger yet. I was really about to say something powerful. They were all just going to, man, we were going to have a revival. And the Holy Spirit took the credit from me. And he falls into place. And the Holy Spirit overcame it, just like he did us in the beginning. It was amazing. And he even says that all of us were amazed. Is God really doing this? Like, we never would have imagined this. We never would have thought this. That these barriers that we have in the world that seem like we cannot overcome them and they will not be broken down. And God, with one swoop of the Spirit, knocks it down. It's the power of our God and his gospel to overcome anything on or any sin in your life, any division that you have. Any, any problem in our culture and with our systems and everything else that we have developed in our pride. The grace of God knocks them down. And they immediately were baptized. And then I stayed with them because we were kind of getting along and we were like brothers all of a sudden. And, and I stayed with them and I taught them and I learned from them and we discipled one another. And here's what he says the main difference was. God told me to do it. And as I saw the Spirit fall on them, I remembered the words of Christ. I remember this isn't what something new. This isn't what my plan, it wasn't the Gentile plan. I remember that it was God's plan. Look at verse 16, that he would be baptized 
uh, all the people would be baptized in the Spirit of God, that God would save them, that, that the Spirit would dwell in them. So this is not God calling Peter to do something out of nowhere. It actually fulfills, as we said before, the Great Commission. It's God doing what he said he would always do. And Peter remembers this. See, what's happening here is the whole story of Scripture, the inclusion of the Gentiles, was foretold from the very beginning. When we walked away from God, we lost the community and inner circle with him that we're created to have by his grace and his mercy and his work and who he is alone. And we stepped outside of that to find our own. But even in the beginning, in Genesis 3.15, he said he would come again. And then he makes a promise to Abraham, a covenant with him, based on his character alone and not Abraham's, to say, I will make you the father of many nations. Right after Genesis chapter 11, when in our pride we tried to build the Tower of Babel, our own kingdom to make our own worth and value, and God separated the people into different languages and tribes and cultures, and immediately following that, he says, but I will bring my people back to me from every tribe and every language and every tongue. And he, he tells us that plain all throughout scripture, Isaiah 49, Psalm 87, Joel 2, Jesus talks about it in Mark chapter 9. This is not a new thing. And it will be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 5, when all of us are worshiping God together as one in him. And so Peter, though he fought against it, verse 17, he says, when God opened my eyes to the reality of the gospel truth, who was I to stand in the way of God? I began to realize I am for him or I am against him. I am building his church or I am tearing his church down. I am in unity and love and the gospel truth as only it can bring, or I am in disunity and hatred. I am in humility and his grace, or I'm in pride in what I can accomplish and what I can do. And I want to be with God. I want to be with God. I hope that you want to be with God today. And if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, now is the time to place your faith in him. But if you follow him, now is the time for the gospel to radically transform your heart to desire to be with him in everything that he is doing and everything that he has called you to. And we see that God is integrating his church with every ethnicity and culture and socioeconomic group. They're, we're either standing in the way of that or we are with God in that. And what is, it wasn't their plan, it was God's from the very beginning. So listen, here at Redemption Hill Church, we want to be a church for all people. We know that all people aren't going to come to our church, but we want to be for all people. And we want our church to reflect our community. And that's important because we're not just trying to get people from every background and every, every race and every ethnicity and every culture and all these different things. And we're not just trying to do that. We're trying to reflect what God has put around us. But it's important that we seek that. And you need to know that that will affect the way that we do some things here. And it will be messy at times, and it will be uncomfortable at times, and it'll be hard. Because the goal in our community is not just to eliminate, listen, it's not just to eliminate elitism, prejudice, and racism, but to achieve unity and diversity around Christ. So two things I want to say to get us started in this way. One, it starts with the church being defined by who we are in Christ above all other things. If you're defined by his kingdom and his family and the people that we are in him above all other things, then we can begin to love one another and, and find unity with one another, learn from one another, listen to one another, care for one another, grow with one another in the reality of who God is and see the image of God in other people. Not just try to make people like us, 
but to appreciate who God has created them to be so that we might know God more and then together create something more beautiful than we can apart. So to be one in gospel unity, it does not mean that we lose our worldly cultures. What it means is they are beautiful and needed, not competing. And it's going to be uncomfortable because when we, when we put the kingdom of God above all other things, then it will begin to be the lens in which we see all other things. It will be the way that we begin to, to reflect on what we think and what we believe and how we interact. So it will form the way we go about sharing our political views. It'll form the way we go about sharing loving and caring for people who don't think like us and act like us and look like us and do different. Listen, do you think it was very comfortable for Peter to eat with the Gentile people? This dude has never had bacon in his life. And he sits down at the table and he's looking at that thing, probably thinking it's gross, not knowing really what it is and how to eat it. But God is doing something in them where they learn from one another, they care for one another, and God creates his, or builds his church in a way that they neither would have ever imagined, and it's more beautiful than they could ever have imagined. The second thing, I know we could go on and on about that, but the second thing is, to do that, we have to be willing to be a part of a church that does not meet all of our preferences. This is huge. It's not always going to be comfortable Because to be a part of the church that God is calling us to, to reflect our community for his glory and to be satisfied and to know him in fuller ways means that we can't find a church based on our preferences. That would be to get in the way of what God is doing. Listen to me, one of the reasons that the church is so segregated today is not just or or because at all we're full of racists, but we're full of consumers. And our preferences guide us. The circles that we have in the world, the things that we normalize, the, 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 the things that we idolize, we, we build our value and worth on those things and our comfort on those things. And then we come to church and that's all that we want. And it keeps us from all God wants us to have. You've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. You've got to be willing to listen and learn. We've got to be willing to come together and, and build unity around Christ and nothing else. He must be the center. Look what that does. Look at verse 18 with the circumcised party. And by the way, they're about to completely change their name. But look at verse 18. I'll actually read it for us. Chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Repentance. Shame. Oh, man, we missed it. And they glorified God because it wasn't about them. They were humbled by the grace of God. And so therefore, when they discovered that they were wrong, it wasn't a point of tension. It was a point of glory. Saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We too want to be brothers and sisters with all people. See, the gospel radically transforms our hearts. Not just on salvation, but in missional transformation in all that he's calling us to do. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there because I, I got you guys out late last week, and I'm not going to do that again this week. There's a big question. I'm, I'll, I'll post this later so that we can still have this part. Because there's a big question for the people still of the Church of Jerusalem and, and also for me, and that's what do we do with the law? How do we actually see the law through the lens of Christ? 
Because see, maybe, maybe some of you have heard before in your life or you've had this issue where you've read about the law in the Old Testament and you thought, why don't we do these things anymore? Why, why is this matter and this not matter? Maybe somebody's come to you and said, well, I see in the Old Testament that you can't eat shellfish and I saw you at Red Lobster last weekend and so the whole Bible's a sham. <laughs> or maybe you might even look at this text and think to yourself, well, if God came along and, and he made a new law in place of the old law because the culture had changed, then maybe we need to be God's editors and not his followers. And, and maybe we need to look at the text and look at our culture and start changing some of the laws because God already set a precedent for changing his word. And that's not what's happening at all. See, I'll take 60 seconds to, to give you guys this. I don't care if you want it or not. I want, to, I want us to know what Jesus says about the law. Look at Matthew, or you don't even have to turn there. Matthew 5, 17. It says that Christ fulfilled the obligation of the law. He fulfilled the law for us. And, and what we begin to discover is that there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. I'll put this in more detail on, on social media this week. But there are, there are ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. Tertullian, the church father, late early uh, late first century, late second century told us about this. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually still talks about this. I know all of you have that on your nightstand, so you can refer to it later tonight. But these three types of laws that make up the 613 laws in the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws all had to do with the temple and the people of God. So there was a temple, that's the presence of God, a priest, that's the mediator between God and man, and a sacrifice to reveal the sacrifice that Jesus would one day come and make on behalf of our sins once and for all. And when Jesus comes and lives and dies on the cross for our sin and rises from the grave, there is no longer a need for the temple. He helps us out with that in 70 AD by destroying it. Because he now makes his people the temple and presence of God and his people his holy place. There's no need for a priest because Jesus is our high priest and he is the mediator between God and man and has done all of the work to bridge the gap between us and our sin and the God that we were created to be in the inner circle with. Bring us back into communion with him so you don't need to go to a priest today. You can talk to Jesus today. We're not going to make any sacrifices today because we're going to talk about and sing about the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and he being the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And so we no longer have to make sacrifices. He has fulfilled the obligation of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. Then there's the civil laws. These are where it gets a little squirrely and confusing. Because all of us have civil laws, things that the government tells us to do and things that are cultural and God tells us to abide by those as long as we can glorify him in them. Romans chapter 13 being the most popular place for that. But in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people were under a theocratic law. They were, had a theocratic government. God was their king. He was their Lord, his Savior, prophet, priest, and king. They did not abide by the laws of man. And God gave them laws to separate them from the people to reveal who he was to the nations. That was always his plan. But we have civil laws like that today. Food law, they had food laws, they had business laws, they had land laws, they had clothing laws, all of these different things that separated them from the people, just like we have in America today. We have things like Better Business Bureau, FDA, all kinds of things that set up that if we look at those laws, they separate us in, in some ways from other nations. We are America. We have our set of civil laws. Those separate us from other nations. We say it separates us to reveal freedom in Christ, in his grace, we see that he gave us the law to separate his people from all other nations to reveal that he is the one true God. 
But when he comes, we no longer need law to separate us to reveal who he is because we have Christ and by his grace we are separated by the humility we find in him doing all the work for us to have salvation and us revealing who he is in all that we do. That we do not live under the law, but because of Christ we live in the law for our freedom and he has set us free by his grace and salvation is in him and him alone and that's how we're set apart. That's how we reveal him. So the civil laws of the Old Testament, the obligation is taken on by Christ and they are fulfilled. Then there's the moral law. I'll close up with this. The moral law are things like the Ten Commandments. These are things that we still find in the New Testament, by the way. All ten of the, uh, the Ten Commandments are found in the New Testament verbatim other than the Sabbath law. Because no longer do we participate in the Sabbath law on Saturday. That's the ceremonial law, which Jesus has fulfilled, the obligation we are no longer under. But the Sabbath we still take, but no longer in a day, but in a person, Jesus Christ. So the laws are given to us in the New Testament. The moral laws reveal to the unbeliever that there is a God, that there is a Savior, and that there is a need for a Savior because we cannot live up to the law. And the moral law gives the believer the ability to be like Christ, to reveal him in all that we do, to desire to glorify him in all that we are, to live in the freedom that he has provided for us. So though when we place our faith in Christ, the work of the moral law is completed and positionally we are righteous because Christ is righteous, we are holy because he is holy, we still are under the binding of the moral law to reveal him in all that we are in the world that we are called to for the sake of the Great Commission. And so see, when we look at the laws of the Old Testament, we see that Jesus comes and he not only fulfills the obligation of, but fulfills them completely, the ceremonial and the civil laws. But there are still moral laws that we live in to reveal him. And there are moral laws that reveal to the unbeliever that they need him. But one day he will come and make all things new. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see the end of that day. When all who have placed their faith in him will worship him, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they will do it with one voice, as one people, in one community, under one God, and one salvation. But see, to understand the law is to understand grace. It makes us humble and not proud. It allows us to be found in him and not us. We begin to desire what he desires, to want what he wants, to love what he loves, to seek what he seeks, to, to desire those that he desires to know him. See, we too realize, Acts eleven eighteen that all people, all people are welcomed to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And that all who place their faith in him are made one in Christ. And therefore, we can get excited about Jesus and the people of, of our community who are like us and not like us, knowing Christ and learning and growing with them in God.